Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to today's FS Club webinar. This is our last formal webinar before the end of the year, although tomorrow morning we will be launching the Smart Centers Index. But as an FS Club webinar today, we're going to talk about the future of aging. Societies will be nothing like the past. Uh, and I certainly know that all of us are going to pay attention because whatever we think, uh, this is the world that we're going to be moving into. Now, many of you will know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it really is a privilege to be able to introduce these webinars, uh, but I can only do so on the, on the basis that our sponsors, who range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance, are so generous in letting us explore the various avenues and nooks and crannies uh, of uh, the global financial markets. And it is a real delight here to have somebody I've always, always admired, uh, Charles Goodhart, famous for Goodhart's Law, which all of you will know. Uh, and uh, I've been delighted through Charles to meet uh, Manoj Pradhan. And today we're going to be discussing uh, the conclusions of their book on the great demographic reversal, which I think has got some fascinating implications for us. Um, I have read the book. Uh, you'll find it anyway, but there are links, of course, on the website, uh, and I do commend it to you. Today's format, as ever, will be I'll be here to get out of your way and into our experts. Um, the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to speak for about 20 to 25 minutes, and we've held back 15 to 20 minutes, depending for questions and answers. Please do use the GoToWebinar uh, question facility to send me questions. Absolutely no point in emailing me or texting me. It's very kind of you, but I'm here with you right now, uh, and I'll only get those too late to feed them into the conversation uh, with Manoj and Charles uh, towards the end. Now, just before we get cracking, we have three polls today. Uh, I'd emphasize three uh, completely uh, different polls. Uh, so fingers on the buzzers. We're going to ask this first one here just, just as a warm-up. And you can see here, monetary aggregates you know, have risen by a lot, but the velocity of money has fallen sharply. As the world normalizes, how much will the velocity of money rebound by towards the end of 2021? So a lot moderately or to remain the same. I'm just about to flash up the poll here and we will uh, ask you to give your answer. So do you think it's a lot moderately or it will remain subdued? And as ever, I'm constantly impressed with how we're well over the 50% voting mark heading up rapidly, uh, 75, we're now over 80%. I'll leave it open just a couple more seconds and I'll close the poll. Uh, now, if I may, and I will share the results. So as you can see here, uh, moderately is the rebound that most people expect moderately there at 52% and pretty much split as a lot or it will remain subdued. Well, that's a good warm up to uh, what this is about, which is not kind of the lifestyles we'll be living, but what are the financial implications here? And so with no further ado, I'd like to hand over uh, to our experts, Charles Manoj, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Michael. Can we have the first slide, please? Um, that's just the title, so on to the next slide, please. Now, I want to start off by reminding people how extraordinary our monetary and financial history has been over the course of the last 70 years. If you take the centuries before then, uh, the long-term interest rates consoles in the UK had remained really fairly stable, which means that expectations of inflation and expectations of future short rates 
remained really pretty stable through wartime and whatever else got thrown, flung at the country uh, for the centuries from 1700 through to 1950. And then from about 1950, there was a steady rise in long-term interest rates and in inflation expectations until about 1980, and then suddenly all that reversed. Now, if you take the upturn, um, my short explanation of why that occurred was that the politicians of that era had been brought up during the Great Depression, and to them, unemployment was the great evil. Nobody knew what the natural or non-inflationary rate of, of unemployment was. And so the politicians tried to press unemployment continuously below that natural rate. And inflation rose as a result really fairly steadily, along with monetary accommodation. And then the end of 79, on came Paul Volcker and managed to turn it around. And from then on, uh, inflationary expectations and interest rates declined really very sharply indeed. Now, a lot of that undoubtedly was due to much better monetary policy with central bank independence and inflation targetry. Nevertheless, during that whole period, interest rates short and long declined fairly steadily, which means it wasn't a tremendous difficulty for the central banks to achieve that. Moreover, since about 2008, despite throwing the kitchen sink as far as they could at expansionary monetary policies, inflation remained below target. So what all that means is that from about the 1980s through to the present, there was something else in the background was bringing about disinflationary forces. Now, our argument is that a major element of the factors bringing about such disinflationary, such a disinflationary element were two long-term trends interreacting, uh, globalization and demography. Can we have the next slide, please? Now, on the left, the blue line shows the availability of those of working age population in the advanced economies of the West, Europe, North America, Australasia, etc. And the yellow line shows the population of working age, the working age population uh, in the economies that entered the global trading system, effectively China, which is about a quarter of the world's population, and Eastern Europe after the fall uh, of the Iron Curtain. Now, what you can see is that the increase in the working age population, which was then available to any businessman who could shift his production from the high wage to the low wage economies, um, meant that the availability of labor to anyone with a mobile production effectively more than doubled uh, over the 30 years or so from 1980 to 2010, a positive supply shock of a scale that has never ever been remotely equal. And suddenly a huge surge of available labor and you can see on the right how the increase in the available labor supply uh, shot up to about 2010 and is now in the process uh, of reversing very sharply. Now, that was massively disinflationary uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first, it was disinflationary because the price of traded goods 
now largely produced and exported out of China, uh, was held down and in fact was relatively lower on a year-by-year -year basis. Secondly, uh, it meant that uh, faced with wage demands uh, from uh, the people in manufacturing, workers in manufacturing in the advanced economies, the employers could turn around to them and say, I hear what you say, but unless you moderate your wage demands, I'll simply shift my production uh, to the Czech Republic, uh, China, South Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan, wherever. Um, and that meant that effectively the trades union's power got badly dented. Furthermore, there was a major shift in up most of our economies out of manufacturing and into services. In manufacturing, workers are held together in quite large numbers in single manufacturing centers, are well organized and frequently unionized. In services, they're in small groups, widely divided, not unionized, and the effect of that was essentially to reduce the power, bargaining power of labor tremendously. Next slide, please. Besides the uh, globalization, we had a major shift in the demographic uh, developments in our economies. After the baby boom went through uh, towards the end of World War II, and with the rise in the availability of contraceptives and other factors, there was a massive shift in the proportion uh, of the young in the population. Um, the old began to increase in numbers, but except in Japan, uh, by far less than the decline in the young. Um, since about 2010, the, the population of the young, the proportion of the young in the population has remained about constant, while the number of retirees uh, has uh, steadily increased. Now, this again is disinflationary for a number of reasons. Uh, first, um, uh, work you don't hire a worker unless their pay is less than the value of their marginal product. Moreover, the workers have got to save for their retirement, so that in itself, a shift towards a greater proportion of, of people in the working population is disinflationary. Into the bargain, the participation rate of those of working age population increased very sharply uh, because with the reduction in the number of the young, the availability of consumer durables, the share of women of working age population actually working in the economy uh, increased by leaps and bounds. Uh, so that the proportion of workers overall increased even more than the proportion of those of working age population. And the increase in the proportion of workers is disinflationary for the reasons that I just set out. On the other hand, uh, the dependents consume but do not produce uh, almost by definition. And can we have the next slide, please? And this is particularly the case uh, in advanced economies uh, of the old. And it, see the, uh, the, the, blue, the hump blue and yellow line is sort of the age-specific uh, production and income, while the blue and the red line 
uh, are age-specific consumption uh, of the young and the old. And you see that the young don't consume all that much, while the old, particularly in the advanced economies, consume a lot. Now, you may ask, why are the old consuming so much? And the answer is that a great deal of that uh, is actually in the form of medicine and carers. And one of the reasons for the latter, as we point out at length in our chapter four, is that the proportion of the old, as you get really old, in the need of care to get through the normal activities of daily life, uh, increases progressively and exponentially. You're really quite unfortunate if you get a neurodegenerative disease before the age uh, of 65. From 65 to 75, the proportion of those uh, who need care assistance to get through normal daily activities is somewhere or about a third. It rises to just over 50% um, uh, when you get between 75 and 85. And from 85 onwards, it rises to 80%. And when you get over 95, it's just about 100%. And that means as you get a shift uh, in, the, in the dependence from young to old, you will get even more uh, pressure on, uh, on, on consumption of goods and services. Uh, on to the next slide. Now, one of the features of joining a high-wage world, the advanced economies, uh, Europe and the US, North America, for example, to a low-wage uh, world, particularly China, uh, is that inevitably people will shift production, and rightly so, from the high-wage to the low-wage. What that actually means is that uh, wages in the low-wage area will surge ahead, while they will stagnate and even go down in the high-wage area. And I think the column on the left showing the ratio of average wage rates of an American worker to a Chinese worker um, has declined from 35 to 1 uh, in 2000 to down to about 5 to 1 uh, in 2018, and probably less even now. And that is a factor of seven times. I and mean, that is a dramatic change. The shift between Western Europe and Eastern Europe has obviously been similar in direction, but less marked. Now, what that has meant has been that, particularly as there are many more Asians and Chinese and there are Americans, um, that world inequality has actually been dropping uh, for the first time uh, from 2010 onwards, uh, for the first time since data are available in about 1800. If you go back to 1800, all our economies were essentially agricultural subsistence economies. And from 1800 onwards, the Western world bounded ahead in terms of incomes per head, standards of living, and so on, while Asia effectively largely stagnated. Asia has now been catching up. And that means that if you are concerned with total equality of everybody should be regarded as absolutely equal, then you should applaud the fact that now for the first time for effectively three and a bit centuries, world inequality is falling. 
but of course it's got a side extremely unhappy effect that it means that inequality within countries uh, within the uh, advanced economies has been rising because uh, next slide please um, because uh, the anyone with access to capital whether human capital uh, financial capital managerial experience educational skills technological skills and so on has done extraordinarily well while those with few skills apart from the strength of their muscles has actually done really really rather badly and this uh, diagram from outdoor uh, showing the uh, relative movements of incomes uh, of those with different educational standards in the united states uh, is a, a really fairly dramatic it's been a wonderful sort of 30 to 40 last year the years for anyone with skills and access to capital it's been a lousy uh, 30 to 40 years uh, for anyone uh, who has nothing to sell but their muscle power and that of course is due in also to technology though we have no particular expertise either on the past or the future development uh, of such technology and of course all that is largely responsible uh, for the rise of populism and all the rest of it labor may have lost their bargaining power economically but it hasn't lost their voting power on to the next slide please and of course it has had a major effect on fiscal developments uh, because the rise in the number of old with their need for pensions need for medical assistance need for care and the rest of it has meant that even before the covid crisis struck on the basis of existing policies for expenditure uh, and taxation given the demographic trends the expectation in 2018 and this chart comes from the office of budget research in the uk in 2018 uh, was for increasing uh, trends of rising debt almost exponentially and continuing and worsening uh, deficits that's the verbal line below the line so on to the next slide please and exactly the same is true of the united states uh, one of the things that people say from time to time is don't worry so much about the debt after all we've we've had periods when the debt was very high uh, in world wars well yes but world wars are known and expected to be temporary and it was widely expected that after war was over uh, we would get a return to what you might describe as prudent, prudent fiscal policy and that the debt would go down in some large case it went down also because of inflation now we have the debt and deficits rising not because of a temporary factor but because of underlying trends in the economy, notably the increase in the proportion of the population which are aging and will need help uh, and which will consume lots of medicine and lots of care. I, I think it's at this stage, Michael, that you ask the next polling question, isn't it? Yeah. That's correct, Charles. And uh, folks, we've got a question here. Uh, midway through, higher primary deficits are required to stabilize debt after so much fiscal spending during the pandemic. How much will politicians succeed 
in tightening the fiscal belt before the next election. I'm now launching the poll, so please do answer you know, uh, substantially in order to prevent a debt crisis, only moderately or austerity will be unwelcome and unsuccessful. I'm always amazed at how quick uh, folks in FS Club are off the buzzers, Mount Ocean Charles, we're up to 75% already. Uh, I'll give it just another few seconds, folks, to vote. Well over the 80% mark. I'm now going to close the voting and display the results. Um, so austerity will be unwelcome and unsuccessful, seems to be the majority opinion. Okay, so that means that you don't expect that the deficit will be brought under control, at least before the next election. So what's going to happen? Well, first of all, you've just argued that you don't think that the deficit will be reduced either by tax increases or by reductions in expenditure. Now, the happiest way of dealing with debt is through growth. But remember from the start that I said that the working age population or the proportion of working age population is going to grow much more slowly. And in those countries which have grown the fastest in recent years, for example, Germany and China, the, the working age population is now going to go down. Now, growth is a function of the combination, of the number of workers and the productivity increases that those workers can produce. Um, and the growth in workers is going to slow. So we would need something of productivity miracle uh, in order to bring about faster growth and I'm afraid the expectation is that although we think that productivity will rise, uh, in part because as production gets onshored back into our economies with the decline in globalization, there will have to be more investment in our economies in order to hold our unit labor costs. But we think the increase in productivity will be modest. So growth ain't going to happen. Uh, productivity, only a modest rise. Uh, you've already argued on the, on average that you don't think there will be much in the way of a deficit reduction for lots of reasons. And that means that the alternative is inflation. Unattractive, yes, but probably necessary to hold um, uh, the debt ratios down um, and, 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 and to, to keep the politicians going in the sense that some greater inflation may be the politically most attractive outcome that they can face under the present circumstances. Meanwhile, um, the pandemic has led to uh, a number of developments. First, as, as indicated in the very first poll, the monetary aggregates, all of them, including broad money, are now growing at a rate which has never been equaled before except during wartime and is likely to go on very rapidly over the, a lot of the next year. Uh, the effect on inflation has been held back by uh, uncertainty and precautionary saving. Savings ratios have been going up. And the question is, when things get back to normal, uh, what is likely to happen? Won't there be a bit of a blip of people rush out to enjoy those activities and expenditures from which they've been prevented? Also, uh, the debt ratio in the private sector has been rising dramatically, um, so much so that many companies are in a fragile position. 
under those circumstances, uh, it, it is likely that the development in past years, whereby prices have risen rather less than you would have expected uh, in relationship to wages, that markups will have to increase because the name of the game will not be trying to develop competitive advantage uh, and increase your market breadth. The name of the game will be salvation solvency, and that will require high profits and people will increase their markups uh, simply in order to stay alive. Uh, so that's what we think will happen. Um, I'm now going to turn over to Manoj to discuss some of the mitigants. Thank you very much, Charles. Um, in the interest of time, I might skip over a few of the slides in here. We can always come back to them depending on the questions. So the five main bits of pushback that we get are all listed here. I'm going to spend most of my time on the last one um, and on the conclusions. But let me just go through some of them very quickly. Uh, we, we get pushback saying mathematically, at least Africa and India have a substantial amount of demographic tailwind. So do we need to really worry on a global basis about the uh, earlier? We'll stick with the um, earlier slide for now, Michael, if you don't mind. Um, do we really need to uh, worry uh, that much about global uh, developments? And the answer is yes, because clearly in the current climate politically, it's very difficult to transfer labor from one country to the other. Uh, that will not change for a while. And at this point in time, it seems India and Africa will do very well, but they don't have enough administrative capital to convert the incoming capital, uh, physical capital into output and ship it back to the advanced aging economies in big enough numbers to act like a China. Uh, in fact, we would need probably three or four Chinas given the state of the global economy when it comes to demography. Uh, the, th the second, third and fourth are, are closely intertwined. And in fact, um, uh, participation rates, as Charles has argued, have come up. We require them to be higher, but it's going to be hard because part of the labor force that is deployed by a household will increasingly look after the elderly at home if the state cannot give them aid. And in fact, when it comes to the role of technology, we want more jobs to be destroyed, particularly in, in the manufacturing sector or in repetitive tasks, because another thing that the numbers don't show you is that as the number of carers who look after the elderly increases, they are diverted increasingly to what we call socially productive activities, but they are not what we consider economically productive activities. And, and as Charles had mentioned before as well, uh, as the population gets older, the number of workers it will need to look after the elderly will rise. Uh, in the interest of time, I'll skip two slides. And if we can just move on to the one about Japan. Um, one more, please, and yet one more. So this is the one that we get questions on all the time. And in fact, we have an entire chapter dedicated to it, saying if all of this is true, why didn't it happen in Japan? And the simplest way to think about it is that Japan's demography turned in the 90s um, you know, when it had truly a lost decade from its asset bust. But after that, Japan's actually done very, very differently from what most people attribute its broad behavior to be. And the reason that Japan went the way it did with disinflation and falling interest rates, because it had a rather large neighbor very close by called China, which was busy disinflating the rest of the world. And Japan had no way to stop those disinflationary forces, just like the advanced economies and the global economy at its borders. The three other things that I think we need to know about Japan, two of which are fairly well understood, 
is that actually Japan didn't do very badly when it comes to productivity. Output per hour in Japan did very well. Um, and in fact, if you gave most advanced economy politicians and economists the kind of productivity profile that Japan has going for the last 15 or 20 years, they'll probably bite your hand off. We'd love to have output per worker rising at that rate. Another reason that Japan's labor adjustment um, uh, led to disinflationary outcomes was not because demography was deflating, but that they had most of the adjustment come through uh, uh, hours and the move to the manufacturing sector. And they were able to weaken the labor force by moving a lot of people from very lucrative full-time employment to part-time employment. But I think the, the piece de resistance of our chapter is some work that we bring freshly and originally to the debate. Uh, we, we went through about 20 years of uh, surveys and data from METI, which is the Japanese ministry that looks after economics and trade and commerce. And what we found over there is the picture of the Japanese corporate sector, which seems to be a very, very weak one, weighed down by the burden of deleveraging, is just not true. In fact, the Japanese corporate sector was a really vibrant part of the Japanese economy, which realized that the future of Japanese corporation growth was not in Japan, but in China, in North Asia, and in the rest of the world, which was flowing with labor. So increasingly, they shifted manufacturing, production, employment, profits across its borders. And if you see the ratio of overseas to domestic production, employment, so on and so forth, it's just a straight line upwards which means Japan took advantage of that global labor shock that, Ch that Charles spoke about and was not actually a domestic story as a lot of people have characterized to it. So we don't think Japan is a blueprint for the global economy and we don't think it should be taken as such. I've only got the conclusions, but before that, I've got one more poll. Uh, Michael, I'll hand it back to you. That's great. Um, well, you, uh, Charles and Manoj have led you down to what ought to be a fairly obvious conclusion, so I'll launch that poll. If inflation rises, how will central banks respond? Will they raise short-term policy rates earlier? Will they allow long-term yields to rise but not raise policy rates? Or will they resort to yield curve control in order to prevent yields from rising? That's great. You've got them thinking that's a little bit slower here this time, but coming in. Just creeping up uh, past the 50% mark. I'll leave it open for just a few more seconds. Great. And I will shut the poll now and uh, present the results. So what, what you can see here is a fairly strong allowing long-term yields to rise uh, and not raising policy rates, which is effectively half of the audience at 48%. That's, that's wonderful because the last two make up a huge uh, rightward skew. Um, and that's kind of where we've gone. So I'll jump to the conclusions, which is the last one. And the poll really helps us out because uh, Charles has made the point that inflation is coming. One of the things I wanted to add to the monetary aggregates question is that unlike the post uh, GFC recovery, where the stimulus went to the financial sector, which was only interested in making sure that its balance sheet was strong, by pursuing a rate of return, the stimulus this time has gone to the real economy, to households and companies which depend on profit and utility maximization. And that will lead to demand outstripping supply in the presence of policy that will remain in place for longer. Just like your poll says, the yield curve will steepen. Uh, no one apparently in this room uh, at least collectively thinks that central banks are going to raise rates much faster. I, I suspect even the ones that do don't think it can do so aggressively. And so the, the, the broad 
the broad thrust of monetary policy will be to allow yield curves to steepen exactly as we think, or uh, they may go further if the, if, if the economy needs help and deploy yield curve control, which actually is holding down interest rates at a time inflation is rising, which only serves to make policy pro-cyclical. Under those circumstances, while the current climate is extremely bullish, as it should be in the beginning of a recovery, um, the, the, the new variant from the UK notwithstanding, given today's markets, but asset returns will be harder to extract. And over a longer period of time, the good news is that this within-country inequality, which has been uh, uh, responsible for so much of the populist uh, stories that we've seen will indeed dampen down, but we've got a bigger fight on our hands when it comes to a direct implication uh, of what inflation will bring, and that is to pitch central banks against administrations. For the last 30 or 35 years, um, central banks and finance ministers have been the best of friends because why would you argue with the central bank that was cutting interest rates? Now, if they are at odds with each other, we don't think central banks will prevail, except as Charles points out, probably in the case of the European Central Bank. But I'll leave it there um, and turn it back to you, Michael. Well, thank you so much, uh, Charles and Manager. Fascinating. And some pretty hard hitting conclusions. Inflation is coming. It sounds a bit like uh, winter is coming in Game of Thrones. Uh, yield curves steepening, how are we going to get any returns, uh, and the tensions in central banks. So maybe Mark Carney disappeared at the right time, sadly. Anyway, uh, lots to chat about here. A couple of quick questions, if I might. Uh, Professor Tim Connell just points out, in figure four, women seem to, to do consistently better than the men, except for college graduates. Any quick explanation of that? No. Um, I don't. Okay. Uh, that depends a bit on what you might describe as gender policies in the United States, and I don't claim to have any expertise on that. It's a good point. Okay. Um, Ian Harris is asking, in my view, the measure that is most subject to Goodhart's law is gross domestic product, GDP, a debate for another day. But his question is linked to this inflation question. Might the technological shifts partly resulting from the pandemic lead to yet another wave of asset inflation rather than the wage price inflation that you are predicting? Um, I don't quite see why, if Ian would like to expand on the arguments why this might be so, uh, we'd be very interested in, um, in listening. I would actually say that we don't claim to be experts in technology, and views about how technology is going to change range from Bob Gordon, who thinks that we picked all the low-hanging fruit, to those who think that AI and the, and the, and robotics will lead to another surge uh, in um, uh, productivity as a result of uh, technological change. We don't take a position on that. Man, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, not at all. I was I was thinking perhaps the question is about uh, the tech bubble, which has been subject of um, uh, debate in the last few months, uh, whether tech companies are going to draw in a lot more optimism. A lot of the IPOs that have come up in the last few days uh, have uh, publicly been uh, reminding people about the excesses of um, the, the dot-com boom. Uh, and as such, I think it's, it is it is possible, but I think uh, that's not the parts that we're worried about. That can happen simultaneously with what we're discussing, because clearly there's going to be a change in some industries 
uh, along the technological pathway. Uh, it's, it, it is true that productivity will rise in, in some of those places, but broadly our, um, our inflation story is more about the normalization of these forced savings. A lot of these savings are not coming from lower income households, but from middle class and upper middle class uh, households. And that is true uh, even according to studies done by the Central Bank of Brazil. So if you are, if you believe that as the world normalizes, who knows when that will be, uh, these savings ratios will normalize as well. Then what we'll be seeing is something like 25% of the restaurants maybe in Spain uh, facing bankruptcy or very difficult positions. The other 75% getting most of the business that comes back um, and seeing actually an excess of demand over supply that will lead to wage price inflation and pull in more and more of the workers that have been let go. That's the argument that's that worth keeping in mind is that the sort of similar occasion was the Spanish flu in 1918 and after World War One, and that led on to the Roaring Twenties. And having been kept from most social activities, uh, my expectation is that uh, we might have another Roaring Twenties uh, with lots of new dances, uh, all the young, i.e. not me, out in the nightclubs through to the early hours um, and so on. I think that the likelihood of a, a burst, whether temporary or more long-lasting, uh, in consumption uh, after, say, the summer of next year is quite high. Well, uh, Ian, thanks. He uh, feels you really uh, elucidated that well. Um, Patrick Rafter, sorry, Rafter Patrick is curious here about uh, what do you think the effects are going to be uh, of this great automation on both uh, working age worker availability and working age worker productivity? You want to have a go at this first, Manoj? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll take a crack at it. I, I think. And as Charles has said, we're not really experts at, at technology. The way we were looking at things is there are, there are two types of um, activities, if you want to think of technology, either replicable or non-replicable. I think that's all that matters. The old distinction between tradable and non-tradable goods and services is is probably secondary to that one. Um, and to the extent that uh, to the extent that uh, um, uh, tradable, uh, sorry, uh, replicable activities are gotten rid of uh, through automation or through artificial intelligence, it does two things. Number one is it raises the productivity and wage growth for uh, the ones that stand to benefit for it. For those with edu higher educations, I would think that uh, technology is a complementary good, whereas at, with, at lower levels of education and more replicable activities, it's a substitute. And that partly explains to some extent, uh, not the male-female differentiation that was a very good question, but that to some extent explains why the higher wage and higher education workers have managed to keep their lot. Because if you think about emerging markets, they've kind of been a substitute for the lower end of the income scale and not the higher end. But what it does, I think, and that's the point we're trying to make, is while it raises productivity in one one uh, certain sectors of the economy in which repl replicable activities are contained, which is what happened in Japan, it's happening in China now, uh, it does shift a lot of the workers over to the services side. And so those that labor reallocation into possibly this time caring for the elderly uh, is, uh, is very much a Japanese style story where if you look at Japanese hospitality, it absorbed the greatest amount of influx of workers from Japanese manufacturing, and a lot of the Chinese workers from northern China have moved into the gig economy into the cities. 
And so since the services sector, as Charles said, is, is typically one in which uh, uh, labor bargaining power is weak and productivity usually doesn't rise very quickly, national productivity uh, remains a bit more of a question mark. I think it becomes more of a sectoral set of stories. It's very divisive in who it benefits and who it's a substitute for. But the aggregate picture, I think, will be very much more mixed. Okay. Um, Trevor Hilder is sort of curious, uh, and I think a lot of people in this sector are hearing so much about central bank digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, but you know, could we design new forms of money, for example, to finance care? I think we can design new forms of money. I think that the provision of central bank digital currency, CBDC as it's known, uh, is likely to develop uh, in certain ways, though probably more slowly than people imagine. Um, but I don't think it has anything to do with caring. Um, I pay for caring, uh, or the state pays for caring, or private people pay for caring, um, in whatever way is convenient at the time. I don't think that it relates particularly to the exercise of caring. I would, however, going back to the previous question, um, and to the very first question we had, uh, say that one of the features of a shift from a manufacturing to a service caring economy uh, is that this is likely to benefit the relative position of women uh, rather than the position of men, particularly younger men. Uh, what you need in caring uh, is empathy, certainly not robotics, which have a empathetic, empathetic quotient of absolutely zero. Uh, women are uh, famous for having more empathy and being better at looking after people than men. Uh, young men frequently have very little to sell but their muscles. And muscle power is going to be at a discount, while the ability to care for people is going to become more and more uh, central to our societies. Okay. Um, there are a few comments here. I'll, I'll just read one out because I, I enjoyed it. As a middle-aged person thinking about my future, should I aim to downsize my home and avoid having a garden? They do demand a lot of work, and it sounds like labor is getting scarcer per citizen. That's uh, from Matthew Leach. But, but just a, a wider, bigger topic. Okay, inflation is coming, uh, but many of the traditional methods of handling inflation were well-worn by the 70s and 80s, and everybody's kind to kind of do the same thing. What can people do to protect themselves from a, a wave of inflation? Hold index bonds, for one thing. Uh, equities are a relatively good protection uh, against inflation. Don't hold nominal bonds. Um, uh, Manoj, you're better at, at uh, financial advice than I am. What else would you say? Land is probably, except that, uh, Michael, you and I want to have a land tax. So I, if it wasn't for policy, I would say land as well. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm rather hoping for a land tax coming in sometime in future. Yes. I, I wouldn't disagree with anything that Charles says over here. The, the, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the remedies that come about will probably come about after a significant wave of adversity for government. So maybe we've got some time to hold on to land until they do wake up to the realities. Um, I would think... Um, Index links bonds is absolutely the best way to go. Within equities, though, there's a lot of disruption going on. I would think think carefully about uh, which are the sectors that tend to benefit. Most healthcare sectors that we've seen in the pandemic are woefully inadequate. 
So the new the new technologies that some of you were very keen to mention, uh, anything that starts along those lines without the hubris of past capital um, and is able to have relatively more productive uh, um, uh, ways forward will give you sector allocations that are pretty good. I would say a huge chunk of that story also comes from emerging markets. I mean, you know, if 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 we are looking at a once in three centuries um, convergence of inequality, it's not something we should ignore at all. Just as a simple example, you know, if you go to Italy, there's a huge debate on how many physical bank branches you should close. Uh, for the last 30 years, uh, you know, places in like Indonesia and India have suffered because they haven't been able to build bank branches, but maybe they don't need to. So you're able to gen bypass an entire generation of capital uh, that you probably would have had to finance and you don't need to anymore, which means I think the, the opportunities in well-selected parts of the emerging world are, are pretty, pretty adequate. Well, I think Matthew does have a deeper point there. This whole bit about kind of reducing your labor dependency where you can, if if that's if 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 that going forward. Um, and I think there's some uh, really fascinating uh, questions we could go on about. And there's a whole chapter devoted to taxation, folks, which I, I definitely do recommend. Uh, Charles Manoj's thinking on that is uh, very much in accord with law finance. But I've only got time really for two quick ones. Uh, Donald McRae is curious. What are the prospects for pension fund deficits in your scenario? Uh, in the short run, pretty difficult. Um, life has been very difficult for pension funds and life insurance companies with these very low interest rates. And initially, they were benefited by the fact that they were capital gains as interest rates went down on the assets they held. The next stage will be an increase in <coughs> uh, longer term interest rates, a fall in some of the values of some of the assets that they hold and short-run interest rates will be held down by policy lower than the rate of inflation. So um, pretty, um, pretty, pretty damn difficult. I, I'm much more worried now about pension funds and insurance companies than I am about banks. And I think everybody tends to look at banks, think they're key. I think the longer-term savings institutions are in a hard place. Yeah. I do remember when I was uh, 10, I had a strange childhood perhaps, but I remember my father explaining when we were in the States why he was actually uh, taking out huge mortgages uh, and using that as an anti-inflation device, which was another way of linking. In, in the book, you, you really point out some of the distortions uh, posed by having this uh, debt equity trade-off, which doesn't really quite work, but uh, perhaps some of our US listeners will be going out and getting, uh, getting long-term mortgages um, but the final question, really, I'll give to Hugh Purser, uh, allowing both of you maybe to just uh, kind of uh, draw out your own conclusions. Is a long-term battle at play here, which will determine the future of the global economy? In other words, this great demographic shift, what will it do to the Western's individual capitalism versus perhaps the uh, Eastern community capitalism of uh, China? It's a very good question. Um, and I'm not sure that I would feel confident of an answer. Uh, in particular, China has done so much better in many parts of the West that that is one of the factors behind the relative decline in democracy. Um, I find it difficult to believe that in the long run, uh, an autocracy can be as productive 
um, and as attractive for a population as democracy. But democracy is undoubtedly in a rather difficult situation at the moment, and these trends are going to make it worse for the time being. I, I do think it's 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 an excellent it's a really excellent question. I do think there is a convergence from both sides. First, I, I agree. I couldn't agree more with what Charles is saying. Just adding a couple of things on the China side, which is that, you know, in, in 1979 and the late 90s, now any time that the Chinese burst of reforms has come to uh, a standstill, they, they've had to increasingly look to changing institutions within their economy. And you know, as is famously said, uh, China, unfortunately, unlike Japan, is turning old before it turns rich. Uh, if it had turned rich, I think its ability to hold on to uh, a more authoritarian uh, rule, rule of law might have had a greater prospects. But I think that that they're probably going to have to trade some of this off in order to assure prosperity in the future. In the advanced economies, I think the problem, one of the problems has become uh, of matching, as the last question went, of pensions to obligations. And I think that will increasingly require either regulatory control in the form of financial repression or that future uh, downturns will have to be met by a, a, a closer combination of monetary and fiscal policies, which could move a little bit further away from capitalism. So I think there's probably a little bit of conversion, but an excellent, excellent question to end the debate on. Well, sadly, I'm, I'm getting lots of compliments. Uh, all of the uh, questions will be sent to you with the emails of the individuals, um, but the compliments basically mean I'm running out of time. And if I could, I'd like to give three quick rounds of thanks, as ever, to our sponsors. You're extraordinarily kind for letting us uh, range so widely and freely, especially uh, before the end of the year. Uh, for me, it's a real delight to have two superstars here to close uh, our year on a high. So I really appreciate it. Um, I'd secondly like to thank you, the audience. You've been very engaged today. Uh, to remind you, uh, these will continue into next year, as ever. Um, and we're going to be opening, uh, I have no idea how we'll be opening on Tuesday the 5th, but we will be looking immediately at the impacts of, of Brexit. And we'll have Leslie Batchelor, who used to be head of the Institute of Export, uh, talking about Brexit and trade. Uh, and then we're going to look at, on Thursday at a portfolio career with Edward Wilde. So, so lots of stuff ahead. Um, but finally, if I may, I'd like to thank both Charles and Manoj. Unfortunately, in this day and age, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause easily. Um, I have my Korean karmic clapper here. Um, it is Korean, so I, I think I split here between China and the West on this one, but I will execute a, a round of applause for you. We truly appreciated both of you spending time here. Folks, I can't recommend reading the book enough. Um, I did it as homework for today. I enjoyed it thoroughly. There's a heck of a lot more content in there that you really ought to digest, and it's a perfect book to read over the holidays. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you both. Take care and have a good festive season, everyone.